Hey everyone, Ben here with a quick announcement before this week's episode. We now have a Discord channel, so if you want to talk to us about this week's episode, other movies, or anything else in particular, hop on and drop us a message. We hope to see you there. You can find the Discord invite link in the episode description. Now on to our discussion about Kelly Reichardt. listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. Each episode, we focus on a director by discussing their most popular film alongside a personal favorite from elsewhere in their filmography. We also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context that may help us view their movies as they wanted us to. So this week, uh, I've chosen Kelly Rika, which I'm really excited to talk about. So for our popular pick, we have First Cow, which came out, I think it was released in the festivals in 2019, but really only saw wide release in 2020, which is this year. It's a popular pick because it's being distributed by A24. So boom, boom. An indie movie being distributed by A24 in this year and like and onwards is going to be a more popular indie movie than most other companies. Especially for Rika, where most of the movies are quite underseen. That's why it's a popular pick. And this might have the biggest play at any sort of like award season contention, if that's anything mm. that we want to talk about. But I feel like the, they are, it is primed in a year full of, I don't know, unreleased movies. This could be one that, that pushes through and maybe gets a best picture nom or something. Mm-hmm. I know that it's probably one of my one or two favorite movies that I've seen this year. Same as well. I think First Cow was also one of my favorite movies from the year. So for the deep cut, I picked Old Joy because it's the easiest to compare because it's also about two men and their friendship, which is maybe a bit of an odd pick because I think people talk about Reichardt and her stories about women. Just guys being dudes. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I had to. (laughs) And it's a deep cut because it's her second feature. But what other movies have you all seen? So... Eli just watched Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> Last How do you night. feel right now? <laughs> oh, man. I'm a wreck. <laughs> Wendy and Lucy is... I loved it. It's really, really well done. It reminded me a lot of Italian neorealism movies in the way that it lets you get to know this town in Oregon and the people in it and how they interact with Wendy and also kind of because of how devastating it is. <laughs> I really loved it. And I've also seen First Cow and Old Joy. Wilson? The only other Kelly Reichardt film that I've seen outside of these two that we watched this week is Certain Women. And I caught that on a plane ride coming back from Berlin where I saw First Cow for the first time. Not to humble brag, humble brag. Um, (laughs) But it was admittedly like one movie that I saw in like a whole marathon that I had during that flight. It didn't really make such a massive impression on me it is this anthology of of stories of these different women is it in Oregon or it's just like the northwest in 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 the U.S. she's able to get these incredible performances from these outstanding actresses that makes it worth the watch Uh, I did find it like a little bit slow definitely during the Michelle Williams segment (laughs) and maybe the Laura Dern segment. We do not speak ill of Laura Dern in this house. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I will not not be rich. I said thank you. (laughs) For me, I've seen all of her major feature films except for her very first one because I do not know how to find it. 
which is River of Grass, which came out a while ago. I can't remember. I've seen certain women, and I think it's maybe my least favorite Kelly Reichardt. But for, I think for some people, it's their most favorite. As we talk about it today, I think we'll kind of kind of see the differences between First Count and Old Joy, which are kind of like Kelly Reichardt in slightly different modes yeah. of working. And I think Southern Woman is an extreme in a different mode. It is her slowest, and I think her most... Her most subtle film. Like, I read some reviews about it and there were just so many things I just did not catch. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. A billion things I didn't understand. And I was like, wow, I, I thought it was just like people talking, but it's like people talking and the subtext is just buried under like 100 feet of sand. So like, <laughs> that's kind of how she works. And yeah, that's how she she's, likes to she's work. like the master of, of subtlety and subtext. That's, that's very quiet mannerisms. Yeah. It's arguable if it always works, but I think sometimes it works with some people and I think that's all that matters for her. Like she wants to just hide it and she doesn't want everyone to get it. And I think that's kind of where she works from. But yeah, before we get in too deep about Rykart, maybe I'll just talk about her and like give a brief overview about her life and her career. Yes, okay. So she's director and screenwriter. She also edits a lot of her movies. So she usually works with Jonathan Raymond when she writes. Uh, and he's written with her Old Joy, First Cow, Miss Cutoff, Wendy and Lucy, and Night Moves. So a lot of these are based on short stories that he has written, except for First Cow, which is based on his 2004 novel, The Half-Life, which is actually the reason they even got to know each other because she wanted to adapt that way back in 2004. Wow. But that didn't happen. But then they made Old Joy instead. And so that's kind of how that began. And so we kind of have seen it go full circle now that first cow has come out. It's kind of funny that, you know, I feel like when a director has a long brewing passion project like that, that becomes a lot of the narrative around the marketing. Think like Silence from Scorsese. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny that it didn't happen with first cow yeah. and Reichardt. But then as you're saying, Ben, Reichardt goes under the radar too often. Yeah. She goes super under the radar. So I... Have this little quote from her about editing her own films. I got it from some article. And she says that nobody comes into my editing room ever. (laughs) (laughs) Art by committee is a really bad idea. (laughs) So she's really this... um, I think she really thinks of herself as kind of like this filmmaker auteur type. And she has a lot of control over the image, the sound, and the story. And I think she takes a lot of ownership about all the elements She's also good friends with Todd Haynes, which she she mentions him a lot, and he's executive produced many of her films as well. And she's really characterized, as we've said, as an outsider in the mainstream film community, in America at least, and and that's because of kind of her dislike of the Hollywood machine, and like, her films are also generally about outsiders as well. So, for her early life, she was born in Miami, Florida, on March 3rd, 1964. She's very not Miami energy. She's very not Miami. <laughs> and she's the daughter. Okay. This is the like only little bits of like facts I can find about her in terms of her early life. She was the daughter of a crime scene detective and an <laughs> undercover narcotics agent. What? Which Wild. I just like, what is this? <laughs> and she grew up in Miami, which she left because she dropped out of high school and then hitched a ride to Boston and then took night classes there to get equipment to make films. No way. So that's kind of her early start. She was really a couch surfer type person. Yeah. So in Boston, she applied to art schools and then she graduated from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Oh, cool. That's a great museum. Yeah. So she is really like this um, kind of like also kind of like this drifter kind of person. And she talks about spending a lot of time in cars as well, which is kind of part of the themes of her her films, about moving around a lot. Uh, She moved to New York and then started work on River of Grass, her first feature, which came out in 1994. Okay? 
and it did have kind of a modest uh, positive reception and people did I think it actually landed on some top 10 lists as well um, but that movie never kind of became Reichardt's big like blowout film that started her career it just didn't and she didn't make a new film until 12 years later with Old Joy Wow, which is insane and she attributes a lot of that to being a woman in the film industry at the time, mm-hmm. which, fair, makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she really kind of disliked schmoozing and pitching in Hollywood. And so that's kind of why after River of Grass, she started teaching and then just made kind of short Super 8 films. And right now, she's actually an artist in residence at Bart College. And she also teaches in, I think, other liberal arts colleges as well. So that's kind of like her main source of income is what she'll talk about, actually. Yeah, and I found some random fun facts. She loves animals and she loves to knit. Oh, both check out. Make whatever you want of that. <laughs> I have this quote from her, which I think kind of sums up her, her films very well. Quote, my movies end up being about the moments of getting from here to there, but not in a grand way. Getting from the hutch to town, from the parking lot to the gas station, but it isn't a grand plan. I'm just a practical person. End quote. Love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me at least, like, um, she feels like America's only slow cinema filmmaker that I can think of right now. I I struggle to think of somebody that's kind of working on the same level as her in terms of the minimalist style and the kind of pace of her films. Yeah, I just struggle to think of somebody that's kind of working in that same kind of mode. And so her films are really minimalist and they are often shot on low budgets. And when we say low budget, we mean low budget. <laughs> Even on Night Moves, which was the film she made before Certain Women, which was with, you know, Jesse Eisenberg and, like, I can't remember, like, one of the Scars guards, which, you know, like, with such big names, she was still, you know, couch hopping while she was doing location scouting. And she's, like, 40 at a time, you know? So she's kind of always had this kind of, maybe not DIY, but, you know, like, I'm going to get this done on my own kind of uh, work ethic, I think. Like, she'll just get it done cheap and, like, on her own. So... With these low budgets, she still has extremely hostile sets, you know, so she doesn't make her life easy. In films like Meek's Cutoff, and I guess maybe even for First Cow, it's always about being outside, very cold or very hot. And so she just, it just sounds crazy. She just wants to make films about people suffering. (laughs) (laughs) That's her, right? That's harsh. Um, That's harsh. Yeah. (laughs) She also wants to make movies about people thriving in spite of suffering. Yes. Yes, I mean, yes. But suffering has to be a part of it. <laughs> I mean, with, like, so with Meek's cutoff, they, she talked about, you know, people coming out of heat stroke and hypothermia, which is just annoying. Oh, God. And But I think she really believes in location scouting. So, like, I was watching it in a Q&A with her, and she talked about how, like, research is, is not going on the internet and Googling. Research is going out and finding things. And for Wendy and Lucy, she tells this story about how she met a woman while location scouting, looking for the correct Walgreens. And she met this woman who was living, who had very little and was asking for help. So she helped her. And then she felt so torn about helping this woman because she wasn't sure when to leave her. Mm. Yeah. And that woman's story just sounds so much like Wendy's story and Wendy and Lucy. It does. Yeah. And it's crazy because she did all that location scouting. And in the end, where they shot was the Walgreens opposite John Raymond's house. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> it's actually hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But even then, the scouting and like the meeting people is where, you know, she gets her best ideas and her best understanding of the people that she's trying to trying to portray. 
you can see that you know the care in Reichardt's right. portrayals. It really seems that yeah. she's like making movies fully outside of like the system of like mm-hmm. all any American filmmaking, and that's yeah. what's like makes her movies so special and unique. And so, what are these movies about? They're about people who are drifters and they're outcasts, usually struggling to make ends meet, and they're almost all set in Oregon, except certain women, which is actually set in Montana. Yeah, white Oregon. So I guess maybe it's because she's friends of Todd Haynes and Raymond who are, or Jonathan Raymond, who are both in Oregon. They both live in Portland, Oregon. So I think she spends a lot of time there. She kind of splits her time between New York and, and Oregon now. Her narrative style is extremely sparse and it tends to follow a very short period within a character's life. And it kind of focuses on like daily routines and daily lives. And I have this one quote where she calls her films glimpses of people passing through, which I think, I mean... That's exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these films can seem to cover very little. And they feel like, sometimes they feel like they end too early without kind of completing the sentence. But I think for Reichardt, the journey is kind of the point. And I think she thinks of all her movies as road movies. These two films that I've picked are about men. But she's known for her work with women, especially Michelle Williams. And I found this great quote from Michelle Williams about Reichardt's work. Quote, 30 things buried under the semblance of nothing. That's kind of how she describes Reichardt's work, which is (laughs) a very interesting way of doing that. And I think um, her style is minimalist in that it kind of gets out of the way and she really wants to focus on like what's going on. But I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how that kind of comes through in the way the films are shot and how they sound. But for me, at least watching it, it seems like the actors have a lot of room to work to just exist and be like inhabit this characters, which is why I really enjoy her films as character films. Agreed. That's kind of like a pretty brief overview of her life and like the kind of work she does. Let me just briefly go into First Cow, which we'll start with, which is the popular pick. This is going to be way more well-known because it is being distributed by A24 and it's also more recent. And I think Reichardt is kind of starting to come into the more public interest despite being quite lean in the career. So it stars John Magaro and Orion Lee as Cookie and King Liu. It's about these two characters who are in the 1820s and they are kind of very quiet, non-confrontational, non-violent men in a sense. In, I don't know what you call this, 1820s Oregon, which is, you know, like the Wild West in a sense. And they're trying to figure out their way and trying to make money and like find a way to succeed in the untamed wilderness. That's what the story is about. First Cow is also based on John Raymond's novel, The Half-Life, which came out in 2004. And the film is not exactly adapting the novel because the novel spends 40 years. But in the film, it spans like, I don't know, a week, two weeks at the most. The novel spends 40 years and kind of is across continents because they actually go to China, I think. And because King Lu is actually an amalgamation of two different characters, I think he's somebody that he meets in China and then... King Lu maybe comes to America. I'm actually only a fifth of the way through the novel, so I have not met King Lu yet. <laughs> I've met his his second half because I've seen Cookie meet the other guy who's named Henry, but completely unimportant. But the <laughs> cow and the milk stealing are not at all in the in the novel. So that's a completely new thing that he added uh, together, Raymond and Ryan. Which Hart. is like the uh, the main plot like point of this movie. <laughs> the title of the, the lowest key heist movie ever. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Why but, is it called but, Half-Life then? Do you know? I have no idea. But okay. the book actually has two different narratives. One of them is more present day, I think the 80s or the 90s. And 
kind of you know at the part at the first part of the movie where Alice Shaw finds the bones. Yeah, so there's this whole thing about finding the bones that I don't know where it's going yet. So, hmm. but yeah, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> it's interesting that Breitkart put in that structuring device of the heist thing because it, it. I think one of the really nice things about First Cow is that it is such a terrific balance of the kind of low-key daily routines and process sequencing and the, you know, there is a plot. There's like, it's driving at an arc of what happens when they, when the heist is working well and then when it goes wrong. Yeah. It is very well structured and written as well as shot, directed and acted and edited. Mm -hmm. Maybe just ask like, what do you I think we all love the movie. Like Wilson hasn't really talked so much about how he feels about the movie that me and Eli have. Yeah, Wilson <laughs> hasn't talked so much about it. Well, I I, I feel like I, I do I do really I do really like the movie. I, I I feel like there is there's so many things that Reichardt's trying to say. It's sort of like that that quote that Michelle Williams quote that there's like a lot of things bubbling under the surface, and I think the performances are. Fantastic! I think that Magaro performance is might be one of my favorites of the whole year. I think he like embodies like a soft boy or a soft man, but in the in the nicest way, in the nicest way possible. To to like if you were to think of like a like a sort of like a feminine man in like such a beautiful and kind way, and just the way that he interacts with everyone else with kindness and even even like the cow it, it's it's so beautiful to see yeah that john magaro performance is really excellent another way i'd put that wilson is that he carries on his face and even in his posture all the painful things he's gone through in the past i think all of these characters mm. have interesting burdensome relationships to their past that we learn in different ways about each character, even the governor guy. Yeah. But yeah, then also, and this is, a, I think, a testament to Reichardt's direction and writing, we learn so much about Cookie Figowitz, the character, from these small actions of flipping over a salamander that was on its back and the way that he talks to the cow and, and yeah, Wilson, like how he interacts with other people in general, the baby in the bar, like mm -hmm. there are all these small, small moments and actions that Reichardt gives that character that tell us so much about him. And Magaro completely aces it. It's great. There, there were just some issues I had with with it being a little slow at times. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. do think like the the opening it, it does take its time. I, I think I think it can it could have like jumped into the main story a little faster. There were some issues of, that I had. Well, the the movie is so incredible in showing like how like movies about old America are not just about like white people, which a lot of like westerns were like so clear in showing but I, I do find it really interesting the way that the indigenous characters are sidelined throughout like the whole film or just like used as like plot pawns and I think it, it was more apparent on this rewatch and it, it like it sort of bugged me a little bit but I do think it is like such a incredibly well directed and gorgeously shot and well-acted movie and yeah just would love to 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 hear your thoughts on on my concerns about the movie <laughs> yes so on the native americans being like kind of being on the kind of periphery of the film like i found that really interesting on the second watch 
and I kind of put this note when I was make, putting my notes. I was like, unnecessary things to the plot. Yeah. Right? In a sense that, like, a lot of the Native American bits, like, they're really just, they're not even vignettes. They're just, like, bits of them doing stuff, you know? And, like, they are so far to the periphery of the plot, which is, you know, milk stealing and making oily cakes. Like, that's kind of, like, the thing, the, the main plot of the movie. But then we have all these, like, bits about Native Americans, like, doing their things, living in Chief Factor's house, mm-hmm. and, or, like, maybe just being visitors to his house. Yeah, like, bits like this, which I was like, like, what is this for? I don't know whether it's, like, kind of, whether this is just Reichardt sketching the world as it should look at that time so that she doesn't kind of fall into the tropes of depicting this wilderness as the way we kind of have always depicted it in film, where it's very white. Maybe she just had a very conscious effort of putting in all these kind of historical details so that it would be an accurate representation of of the place at the time. And because I know, like, from doing my research, she's done a lot of research into the time period because there's very little photographic evidence of that period. And she kind of went to this place called the Grand, the Grand Ronde. It's like a Native American historical society thing that's in Oregon. And so they have a lot of like information about that time period. And in fact, actually lent them props, including the canoe that's in the film. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of these things are extremely period specific. And so I think she just wanted to put all this detail in it so that it would also kind of be this kind of almost like historical reenactment of the time. Because I feel like seeing this 1820s thing, it's very rare in film. Like it's like too far back. Right. You know? Like, with Meek's Cutoff, that's 1845. This is, like, untouched land. Like, people are living in tents. The town is just a bunch of tents, you know? And then there's just one big house that Chief Factor is in that's, like, a house. So, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about this, the Native Americans being kind of, like, a part of it, but also feeling kind of not essential. I think this gets to a question of range of narration. Um, And what I mean by that, uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term, is who the story gives us access to and who whose perspective we're allowed to experience by the director. So I think there are a couple of moments where Reichardt expands the range of narration past Figowitz and King Lou to a couple of the characters who are indigenous peoples. So for example, there's the scene when the translator is in the home of the chief actor mediating between the chief actor and the captain to the Native American leader there and his daughter. And after all the male characters leave the room, the translator sits on the couch with the daughter of the Native American leader, and they look at jewelry together and they chat. And it's a little, it's not a lot, but it's a little thing that gets you to ask a question about these characters' lives. I'd say the same thing for the young Native American man who is a servant in the chief actor's home. We spend Mm -hmm. a whole sequence with him. And I agree that Wilson, I think ultimately he, we get that time with him because he discovers the heist. Yes. And, and busts the, the, the third act open, but we do get some time with him. And again, I think it makes us ask questions about his life that he has with the chief actor. So yeah, I think it's kind of a both and thing. It is definitely a bummer that we don't get to spend more time with the characters who are indigenous people and more perspective and they don't factor as as directly as actors into the plot. But also I think that Reichardt is conscious of that discrepancy and at least throws in some nods using range of narration to get us to ask questions about what 
the lives of all the people on the periphery of the story are like. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, it is definitely something of a, a problem I'd say, but yeah, I think I, I just, mean, Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to interject really quickly. I was doing a little bit of letterbox research right now. And Lily Gladstone, who, who's, who is the translator is actually billed as chief factors wife. Oh, oh really? Yes. That's really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, but see, like we don't know any of that watching the movie, which is so like strange in a way. But I guess like for her, I think maybe it was part of the edit. But like these things didn't really matter for the plot, mm-hmm. right? But I think just being able to kind of watch it and hear so many different accents, like in the bar and like with the soldiers, you know, like you have this really strong feeling of like this being like truly like the Wild West melting pot, like Russians, Chinese people, everyone's just here, right? That's kind of like what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Everyone is here trying to get a piece of gold. It's not something I've really seen in Westerns at all. No. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that very interesting. It really speaks to kind of the care that she's taking into the way that she depicts historical periods and like the amount of research that she does. Very well researched, clearly. In ways that don't feel too explanatory. It's just sort of there Mm -hmm. and you get to pick up on details as you notice them. Or if you don't, then, you know, it doesn't damage the experience. I, I think there's something in in the practice of art making that that means something to me, not to get too personal about process <laughs> or anything, but like the detail about the woman who translates being the chief actor's wife, not being something that we knew until we looked at the credits. Like there's no way of knowing that in the text, but no, I feel like Reichart sneaks in details that are personal to her a lot. And that the audience doesn't need to pick up on, but they're privately there for her. And that creates meaning to her. I am a proponent of doing that. Um, So I'll leave that at that. (laughs) (laughs) So I have some camera and sound observations that I wanted to put on the table here. First with camera. I noticed that across the three Reichardt movies that I've now seen, there are a lot of POV shots I think the camera is always staged, even when it's not in a POV shot, close to a character's perspective. It's not just the writing that Reichardt uses for range of narration. It's also camera placement. Mm-hmm. And that that is just very effective to get you to feel emotions that the characters might be feeling when her performances tend to be pretty restrained. This is mm-hmm. very effectively used in Wendy and Lucy. So about this, something that I think is really interesting, and I mean, I didn't really pick up on this, but when you said it, it just immediately made sense to me, which is that so many of the characters are quiet. Cookie is an extremely quiet character. So the only way to kind of understand what he's thinking without voiceover, which she never uses, is to use a POV shot or something that's like close to being his POV so you understand what he's looking at. Something I found really interesting reading just the first one-fifth of the novel is that there are parts of the first few chapters which are exactly reproduced in the film. Mm. So the parts where Cookie first starts, like picking up foraging, and then he gets spooked and runs, Mm -hmm. that's exactly in the novel. And the most interesting one is the one where he enters the town, walks across, and then sees a girl carrying a bucket into the bar and then coming out with a bucket of beer. I did not understand that shot at all. The entire sequence made no sense to me. But it's kind of like Cookie just looking at somebody, you know? Like, he's yeah, just looking at observing. her. He finds yeah. it interesting. Yeah. In the novel, because it's a novel, it tells you exactly what he's thinking. And I think 
that's kind of Rikard reaching to try and show you what he's looking at to kind of give you a sense of what is happening in his mind. And if you want to know what it says in the novel, it's that he kind of is intrigued in seeing a girl in this camp at all. Huh. Wow. Yeah, that's it. Like, he's just like, oh, it's weird that there's a girl here. I mean, not, in so, not so colloquially, but like, he kind of is just kind of finds her kind of, a, kind of an interesting sight. And then follows her in and she comes out of a bucket of beer and she's like, oh, yeah. And he goes in. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I kind of get that from the movie itself. It's, it's just an interesting sight. We're learning about the fort and the world. Yeah. So, so Wilson, I don't have as much of a problem with those early scenes that take a while because I find the, p- picking up the details in that way about the people he's traveling with and the forest and the birds, which are in every Reichardt movie, it seems. There are yeah. people looking at birds. Yeah, the birds. <laughs> I find all that so pleasurable and and tactile in a way. Even the character details are very tactile, like what they're wearing. I don't have a problem with those early scenes. I, I really like the time that this movie takes across yeah. across the whole runtime. It is a, it is it is only just like a like a mild complaint. I have like not. <laughs> they're such immersive movies that I feel like you can engage in them in, in in like different sort of levels, right? You have you have the level where you're just like experiencing the movie, and then like you, you when you try to to reach deeper, the the insight you gain is is like exponential. Yeah, I feel like because she like buries so many things, uh, like within the the text or like I mean the film, like the more you keep digging, the 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 richer you you get. I agree. Like talking about how she uses just camera and like just image and sound, not dialogue necessarily to kind of give an idea of character is really interesting. Like for me, her style is minimalist in that it's not really particularly trying to highlight what she's doing, but she's doing something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. I mean, personally, that's that's a thing I I really like. And so for me, the, the second time I watched it, the scene where we talked about this, which is Cookie just getting his his new boots, right? And he's really pleased about it. And obviously, Magaro's performance lets you see that. Like, he's just like, I got my new boots. I'm so happy <laughs> about it. Cleaning it. He takes a walk through town. And then you hear everyone commenting on the boots. Everyone's like, you know, like, that's somebody's boots. Oh, those are fancy boots. And then the thing you see right after is he sits down. And he covers his boot with his pant leg. He puts mud on them. Yeah, yeah, he puts mud. He like wipes mud on them. And I don't know what you guys took away from that scene. But for me, that on the second watch immediately was for me. He's such a soft man, as you put it, Wilson, that he would rather cover his fancy boots than to have to interact with other people that could be wanting to fight with him. I love that. Like, it's just, it's so small. It's so simple. And it's really just action and sound to kind of give you a sense of what's happening. Yeah. yeah, and what's happening within his mind, and yeah, it's it's very careful. Yeah, it's great. Another moment that I really love that, like, sort of shows that similar thing just through action is like when Cookie is at King Lou's like apart. Oh no, not apartment house for the first <laughs> time, and he he's just like sitting there, and like King Lou's like outside like chopping wood, and he just like doesn't he has like no clue like he's just like there, and then he's like okay like maybe I should just start sweeping. I'm like who. What, what sort of what sort of person like just decides to start helping out? Oh, I get it. I get Eli it. Eli would get it. <laughs> it's such a beautiful portrait of like domesticity and like two men like sharing a space. Yeah, I, I that's what moment that I really um, vibed with. He is a caring spirit. He he he's not comfortable at ease. He he has to help out and 
go get things to decorate and sweep up the house, which also really sets up for when the house gets ransacked later on. It feels really tragic because Reichardt makes that space of the house equal to the relationship that they build together. Yes. So when it's destroyed, it's devastating. Wow. This also is making me think about like, I really love that shot of him sweeping up. Yeah. Because I feel like I mean, it tells you so much about character, but then also it's the thing that reminds me of how she's trying to do their daily lives. And it's all about chores. Mm-hmm. It's all about just people doing shit. Process. All about process. And just process. And we talk about this a lot, Eli, which is just like, it's interesting to watch people do things. Mm-hmm. So for example, yeah. when they first walk towards King Lu's house, he's picking up his trapped squirrels or whatever they are, whatever these things are. <laughs> and it's just part of their journey back. It's not really something that's highlighted. It's just part of the journey. And there's so many chores in this film. Yeah. I made a list. <laughs> or even the process of making those oily cakes, man. Yeah. So hungry. Making yeah. the oily cakes, making the clafouti. Like, there's just so many chores in this. And one of my favorite sequences is the kind of, uh, the bunch of scenes right after they first meet where it's Cookie doing chores and King Lou's just sitting around talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's a perfect way of kind of describing them as two similar but very distinct characters. Yeah. Whereas Figowitz is often characterized by his actions, I'd say that King Lou is often more characterized by his words and his intellect and also in a little bit of a, I think, a nod to Robert Brisson, who I know we have mixed feelings Ooh. on. <laughs> oh, no, Wilson's, <laughs> Wilson's like gagging. <laughs> you say Brisson, I throw up. <laughs> Any, anytime there's a business transaction... We're, we're looking at the person's hands and the money trading hands. And that's often King Lou's hands. I mean, we haven't even touched on the commentary on capitalism. Yeah, the big, the big elephant, the big cow in the room. Yeah. <laughs> but that focusing on hands for business transactions alone feels like pretty clear messaging. I, I, I didn't know until you told us, Ben, that Reichardt does her own sound as well, but it makes perfect sense. There's one thing that I noticed with sound that she does in First Cow, which is that... Wait, sorry, I, I don't know if she does her own sound necessarily, oh, okay. but I know she's very she's very involved with the sound design. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I didn't read too much about how whether she does her own sound necessarily, but I mean, she's definitely very involved in that process and is very careful about that process. There's a whole article about, I think from New York Times Magazine, where they talk about her being in the sound mixing booth and being extremely particular about everything. (laughs) I mean, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of control and a lot of nuance. Mm -hmm. There's one thing that I noticed in particular that, that she does with sound in First Cow that I'm a big fan of. So most of the shots are one sound focused shots. And what I mean by that is when you see ducks on screen, you hear ducks. When the ducks are not on screen, even if we're in the same space, but just looking at something else, we don't really hear the ducks anymore. She draws your attention sonically to one thing at a time. So that's sort of a world building, tone building thing to get you to pay attention to specific elements and details. But she breaks that mold at key moments. For example, when the heist goes wrong and we're going into the following third act, when King Lou falls off the branch in that sequence we hear the branch breaking across multiple shots. So it's not just one shot where that happens. Gunshots come from off screen. Sounds of danger in general come from off screen. 
And then there's also something like King Lou's house being ransacked. We watch that from afar near King Lou's perspective, but we hear there's a microphone in the house recording from inside the house. So those sounds are very close to us, even though we're not directly there. In general, I think sounds are recorded very close in this movie. It all sounds very intimate and close to your ears, which again sets tone and builds character. Yeah, I think the intimate sound with coupled with the four by three aspect ratio just makes you feel so close to like everything that's happening on screen. It's just such an intimate um, movie and how, how, how she Kelly Reichardt is not afraid to like place a camera, like blocked by trees or, or like just very mm-hmm. within the nature of the movie. And, and just like within the surroundings, you feel so grounded um, within a, like a certain space in any of her movies. And yet, very precise framing, even when mm-hmm. there are obstructions and she's using the nature. What do you all think about the Academy ratio or like the square being used in this? I have a little quote from her. Ooh. So this is about First Cow. She says she really likes the square. There's room up top and on the bottom for the trees. <laughs> and for the close-ups, it's so nice. And the economy of it. It's not capturing grand landscapes, but people who have very small lives. Mm. Again, that's a that's like a perfectly telling quotation. <laughs> I mean, she already tells you why she's doing it. And yeah. I will say I was doing this research and for Meek's Cutoff, which she also uses the Academy Ratio, which is a perfect use of it in that Western. And that's more of a straight Western, really. Like people going out into the West. And obviously that's an unconventional use because usually people use, you know, widescreen grand vistas and she just specifically didn't want to do that but even then she had very specific reasons for doing it not just to you know go against the grain but also to capture you know she likes to capture faces she likes to capture the sky and the ground and she also wants to you know mimic the bonnets in Meek's Cutoff for Mm -hmm. the women because it's it's a women-centered film I think she's very careful about a choice like using an academy ratio for this I think like with trees I think it's very difficult to do trees in widescreen they just kind of look cut off they do. Right. But I they think do. With, with the square, it kind of works a bit better. And I really like the shot, like when their house is being ransacked, then she just puts the tree right in the middle of the frame. It's honestly very odd and uncomfortable. And I think that's exactly the point. Yeah. Because you, it is kind of a POV shot from King Lou hiding. And I think she specifically didn't want to make it look like fake hiding. Like you have to hide, you got to be behind a tree. Right. So I think that's kind of how she, she went at it. It's so surprising how much aperture framing she employs in First Cow as well, because mm. it's already such a small frame, but she does tend to like cut it down even more. So your so your like eyes are just like directed at one person or like one figure. Um, and I feel like that is also like uh, indicative of like what you said earlier, Eli, about how every shot is sort of, close to being a POV and that because that's how we usually like see people like through through doorways or through windows when the aperture framing breaks and you know again it's like one thing at a time one person at a time in a shot often and when that pattern breaks and King Lou and Figwitz are reunited at the ransacked house and they hug it's the most cathartic thing ever because they're finally together again there's nothing in the way of the shot they're hugging each other and the performances are stellar. It's an A-plus moment. I think the last thing that I want to throw out there about First Cow is that it maybe has my favorite final line of dialogue in any movie. Yes. We, I, I won't put it on mic in case anyone hasn't heard. I feel like we've spoiled a lot of the movie already. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> King Lou is thinking about the money. Once again, the shot tilts down and 
bisects his face from his hands and holding the money. And then it goes back up to his face and he decides to put the money aside. He's not going to run away from the ailing Figowitz. He lies down next to him and he says, we'll go together. I've got you. Uh. It's the perfect blend between poeticism and a restrained down-to-earth style of dialogue. It's a perfect moment. And I love that ending dearly. It makes you tear up. Because the movie starts off in in more present day with this girl played by Alia Shawkat finding these two skeletons like next to each other. You sort of like spend the whole movie with this like slight tension of like, oh, how are they going to get there? How are they going to get there? And to think that like at the end of the movie, it is like a choice that King Loom makes to a friendship to like be with him, to like discard like the money and like the the greed that has been sort of consuming them throughout a lot of the the movie is so, so beautiful. It was just like such a, yeah, incredible moment at the end of the movie. And also that Reichardt doesn't feel the need to thread the needle back to the start of the movie and confirm that those skeletons are even Cookie Figowitz and King Lou. It's up to how you want to think of it. I have this thing I want to talk about, which I think needs to bring in old joy, but I think we'll talk about it now because I think... With this film, I think the thing that I find interesting about it is its finality in its last scene, right? Yes, I mean, you could try and like split hairs about whether it's actually them, but I mean, it's pretty clearly kind of played out that they they do end the film dying without their dreams coming to fruition. I found that interesting. I haven't seen so many of her films that many of her films have very open-ended endings. Mm-hmm. They have endings in that like something big happens especially in like Wendy and Lucy, but like there's this feeling of things going on, like something else is going to happen after this. I don't know what. I've only seen a slice of this person's life. But for First Cow, it's an oddity in that you kind of see a slice of their life, but it's the end of their life and how they get there. And I wonder how y'all think about like how that is different in terms of like thinking about her work. Like to me, First Cow feels very conventional for a record film. It's slow, hmm. yes, the way that she chooses to capture the story is unique to her and it's very much her hand. But in terms of the kind of story it's telling, it's extremely conventional. It's a very plot-driven movie, which is very different from Old Joy. So maybe let's talk about Old Joy uh, and we can talk about that. Yeah. So let me just talk about the movie. So it's came out in 2006, a full 12 years after River of Grass. And it stars Daniel London and Will Oldham as Mark and Kurt, who are old friends who kind of reconnect on this trip in which they go to the hot springs to kind of have a day in the wilderness for, for the weekend, I guess. Mark's kind of a guy with a wife and a baby on the way, and Kurt's kind of more of a wanderer, drifter type person. Yeah, there's a score by, a beautiful score by Yola Tango. Oh, so gorgeous. Yeah, amazing score. score. Yeah. I think the thing I want to talk about in terms of, about facts about Old Joy is that Comparing First Cow's credit sequence and Old Joy's is is just a huge disconnect. Old Joy is a six-person crew with two actors going out into the woods and shooting a movie, (laughs) which is just insane. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the thing I want to highlight about this. It's just six people. It's just her, cameraman, the first AC. This was shot on 16mm on an Arton A minima. Cinematographer, first AC, sound guy producer and I think sometimes they had a grip or something. It's like five to six people every day and then two actors and they just go out in the woods and they shoot this on 16. That's how you make magic. Very stripped down movie. (laughs) I have this quote from her. 
after making Overjoy, which is funny now thinking about how she's made this seemingly larger crew film from For First Cow. Quote, for me, keeping the apparatus small is how I work best. I would never want a crew of 13 again. (laughs) (laughs) As on River of Grass. First of all, a crew of 13 is tiny. (laughs) Continuing, I don't want a crew of 10. I just want to make a film where there are no walkie-talkies or blackberries. I just want to go off with a group of friends. I'm better at making films that are private environments. It's less excess, which means I won't have a dolly shot, but that's okay. She really just wanted to kind of like, I think with Old Joy, I think after having so much time from River of Grass, she just wanted to go out and make a movie for as cheap as she could. And so there's a lot of facts about how they made this cheaply, which are really interesting and really funny and really just, you know, like saving money every, any way they can. And with this film, they didn't have an AD or assistant director. So they just kind of went out for two weeks and just like were figuring out what parts of the movie to shoot every day based on the rain, oh based on the weather. They were God. just like, have we done this part? Let's go here and do the scene. Or like, it's raining now. We can't continue shooting that. Let's go somewhere else. It sounds like total chaos. And as somebody who works as an AD, sounds like insanity. But <laughs> they, they made it happen, right? So yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple script. It's 50 plus pages is what they say. Huh. That's sort of my dream. That's how I want to make a movie. I just want to like go out into the woods, yeah. make a road movie for two weeks, just fuck around. I don't know. Sign <laughs> me up. I think it's, it's really interesting. I think... It's kind of what makes Old Joy seem very interesting because of its kind of extreme DIY nature. But I think it adds to the fact that, like, why so much of the movie feels so, so, like, natural and, like, unscripted and, like, even more so than your, like, regular, like, mumblecore, which, which is, like, maybe the closest comparison in terms of, like, dialogue and the types of characters. But I feel like this, you, you sort of, feel them like living through these moments so deeply makes you connect with these characters more and like however you 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 feel about the relationship in the end uh, you know that it was such it, it was like an important moment in, in in both of their lives this this little weekend that's funny that you say you feel closeness to the characters i feel pretty far from both these characters i feel like i am distanced by Reichardt from both of these characters in interesting ways. How come? I agree with Wilson, but I'm going to let Eli continue. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 1v2 pickup basketball game. (laughs) (laughs) About to get dunked on, Eli. (laughs) And I'm the tallest of us. (laughs) No, we are a kind movie podcast. We would never do that. (laughs) I think partially it, it has to do with a lot of wide camera placement. I think you are asked to notice that Will Oldham's character is, as Patton Oswalt puts it in his Criterion introduction, being a dick. <laughs> I think you also notice that Daniel London's character, Mark, is kind of wavering back and forth between relying on Kurt for some escape and kind of being reviled by him. And that's an uncomfy kind of balance in a friendship. Right. And, you know, people say like, oh, you need to like the character to identify with them, which I do not agree with at all. But I think Reichardt is using their unpleasant qualities to put you at a bit of a distance from them. And her camera work, I think, supports that. I personally don't feel that distance from them because I feel like, for me, like, white shots, whatever, it doesn't really affect my engagement with the character. And I think for this one... It's really whether you do understand where the characters are coming from. Because they can be dicks and like they can say things behind the other's back about them. And for me, that point is at the diner where they both say nice things to each other to their face. 
but then say bullshit like out when the other guy is away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like stuff like that. It's it's I didn't really notice it the first time. And to be fair, the very first time I watched it, it was more like a, oh, you know, this is nice. It's just two friends catching up. I like it. But only after, you know, doing some research, only because I did research and then I watched it again. Then I really started picking up all these little micro root things that happened. Even after picking them up, I really didn't feel like it made me feel like it pushed me away. It just helped me understand what's going on in their minds. And I think right. that's the kind of big comparison I want to make between Old Joy and First Cow, which is that First Cow, for me, has characters that are actually, in a sense, quite simplistic. No, I agree. I agree. Old Joy has extremely complex, not unknowable, very relatable, but much harder to pin down characters. And I think completely by design, she didn't want to give you something easily digestible. Yeah. Like she wanted it to be extremely vague. Well, I think it's also because the plot of of Old Joy is so thin that the thing that you should be focusing on is their relationship and, and how like each scene there's like, it's a constant push and pull between each of them and whether or not like they want to like connect or not connect. I, I it's, it's more obvious in, in Mark's character because I feel like Kurt like lays out pretty, pretty clearly like, Oh, I like, he has like the whole, like, Oh, I want us to be friends. Like what happened to us there? There feels like there, there's this like rift between us. Mark is deciding whether or not to keep Kurt in his life. I, I just think it you can like just see it play on 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 his their faces. It, it they're they're not like seasoned actors, I'm sure, right? But but to think that they're like dealing with this like such complex uh, material and 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 pulling it off uh, is so impressive to me. I wouldn't say they're not seasoned actors. Like well, Old Honham has appeared in a bunch of stuff. This was his first role. He was actually casted because he knew about Hot Springs in the area. <laughs> that's, that's how Reichardt got to know him and then like was like you want to play Kurt <laughs> yeah and actually they wanted to cast him as Mark as a way to kind of cast him against his own type but then they couldn't really find a Kurt and then they found a Mark instead and that's pretty interesting and she almost she oh. want, at one point wanted to do put Raymond as Mark but obviously that was not a good idea like Jonathan Raymond the writer <laughs> and they're like that's a bad idea I mean Daniel London I think has had done more like stuff before and I think like when he talks about it, he says they're very different from what he was doing here. But I think it is to Reichardt's credit that it feels so natural and lived in because she purposefully makes them just do stuff. And this is a thing that she talks about a lot. And I think part of chores and process, which is very important, she makes them do stuff so that they're distracted and they're not acting. They're just being. Yeah. And so in this one, there's a lot of chores as well. Same as same as First Cow, like packing up, Kurt's just taking a piss and then Mark's just cleaning up. And for her, animals are really important. Lucy is the best part of this film. Okay, maybe not the best part, but <laughs> one of the highlights of the film. Because she is a wild, basically like this wild card thing that's just running around. Yeah. And she, for Reichardt, she loves that. Like she loves having an animal that's just unpredictable. And you know, like we'll do stuff and you just react to an animal. And Lucy's just really cute because she just is always having a stick in her mouth, which I just loved. <laughs> really interesting point on First Cow, when she talks about First Cow's dogs, she actually really disliked working with trained dogs mm. because they would only go for treats. And because they would only go for treats, they were always looking out for their trainers and they had no natural inclinations. They didn't do dog stuff. They were just robots. Hmm. It's almost like, you know, actors, like sometimes the ones who can't be natural. It's the same idea. But these dogs can't be themselves because they're so well-trained. That's what she does. She puts them in situations like even 
when they're trekking, walking around, they're having a conversation, but also trekking. And they talked about how Mark's shoes were actually terrible. And so he was like slipping on rocks and stuff. Uh-huh. And so that's all stuff that, you know, makes the process lived in. And for the actors, I think, makes them for, like just do stuff. And I really like that. And it really feels like you're going on a hike with them. Also, the fact that a lot of the movie, it, like, there's not a lot of dialogue. Ben, what you say about it feels like going on a hike with them, I think that gets at something of what I'm feeling about the distance versus proximity to these characters. A large, actually a very large part of the runtime is spent looking at the car window at the landscape. Mm. And it really does feel like driving out of the city to go on a hike. It captures that feeling really well. And it feels like you are an accomplice in the car with them. I think also while we're on those landscapes, I thought a lot about the school of painting in early American history called the Hudson River Valley School, mm-hmm. which did a lot to present to the old world the idea of America and the spirit or essence of America being very tied to the landscape. They did a lot of idealized paintings that would combine different portions of the landscape into one image. And I think that spirit of the land as very American is alive in those shots, driving, looking out the window at these beautiful scenes passing by. But it's not quite so idealized because Reichardt is inserting into that landscape a very fraught friendship. That's really interesting, actually, because you're right. Like, when you take out the conversations, then it feels like this, especially with the score, like, it feels like a very nice trip out into the jungle, like, in the forest. Yeah, very lovely. It's a very relaxing experience. But then when you have these conversations, with, which have these really subtle um, little like bits of conflict, then there's that kind of antithesis to this gentle, relaxing trip. And I think yeah. that really puts you in the mode of being one of these men. Like, I'm just trying to get out here on a nice hike, but then there's a bit of this like slight discomfort that you are feeling alongside them. And I find that that really helps you put you in the right frame of mind. Because I remember thinking... Like, after reading that, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be about two people who apparently don't like each other. And I was like, but the music's too nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole point. The music is supposed to relax you, and then the talking is supposed to not relax you, you know? What you were saying about how they were trying to get into the wilderness and relax, but they can't get past their relationship struggle, that is mirrored in the image of all the trash that's being brought to the hiking area, and they can't escape from, as Kurt calls it, the trashes in the city and the trash is in nature, and the city's in nature, and the nature is in the city, and it's all intermingled, and there's no idealized escape into the American wilderness that is very popular in a lot of American literature and painting from early American history. For sound, like because you were talking about sound for First Cow, and I think the sound does the same thing as well, which is the first thing I noticed watching it a second time was, so he starts off with the meditation bell, and then that's cut off by the blender going off, which is really like he's trying to get some peace of mind and then domesticity cuts him off. That's literally what is happening. It cannot be clearer. She's kind of doing the same thing during the campfire scene where they're having this conversation and then Kurt starts kind of breaking down and like is having this drunken monologue. And then that's kind of undermined by shooting the cans, yeah. the plinking sounds. And I don't know if you want to talk about this, but... Uh, you were talking about this being mumblecore, but I realized what it reminded me of, and I'm really afraid to say it. Uh-oh. Just say it. Joker 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Hong Sang Soo. Oh. oh. I 
yeah. because of the drunken monologue that he has. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's really just these conversations where there's really subtle things happening that you kind of have to pick them up. Yeah. Yeah. And how it's like such a contained like moment in time. Yeah, I, I get the Hong Sang Su link. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> very strong. Very strong. <laughs> People getting drunk and emotions coming out. <laughs> yeah. Also, this gets into I see on your notes, Ben, you have a bullet point for homoeroticism. Oh. <laughs> it's a quote from Kelly Record. Oh. Quote, the two things that are somewhat inherent in a story about going into the mountains alone with someone, especially if they're going to a hot spring, are the loneliness and desertedness or whatever it is of being in the forest and then sexuality. They're either going to kill each other or they're going to fuck each other. One of those things is bound to happen. So, I mean, <laughs> Kelly! <laughs> neither of these things happened, but... Yeah, hmm. was that what the massage was? So she talks about this a little bit in the Criterion videos um, where she, when she first reads this story from John Raymond, she asks him, so are they gay or what? And he just says, oh, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> You're so New York. Something like that. And like, yeah, like, so for him, I think as the writer of this, like he... It's just not important at all. Like, it's... Like, honestly, I don't want to say it. Like, it's just kind of just there. I was thinking about the Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises. There's a whole extended chapter where the main character and his best friend escape from the narrative and the problems going on in the narrative and just, like, have a chapter alone in the wilderness. They, like, bond over fishing and camping. And there's a definite current of homoeroticism going on there but it's also like loving as friends too. Reichardt is pulling from a lot of different traditions in American literature and painting. The subtext of the film which I don't think necessarily you need to catch to enjoy the film is about them as dueling woke men. It's very very buried deep into the subtext of the film about them being liberal men who have gone different directions in their lives. Yeah, I mean it's 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 there, but it's not it's not necessarily something you can't always pick up on. I I definitely didn't pick it up on my first watch. I think a lot of it ha- pertains to them being Gen Xers, which none of the three of us are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can't relate. Okay, so one of my big points, like in looking at these two movies, is I had this big question, which is what are these films about, right? And I think that's the really interesting thing about Rikard's film. They're about something on the surface, and then there's all these other things underneath. First, Cal, we already kind of alluded to, is somewhat a comment on capitalism and early capitalism before they were thinking about it. And friendship. And friendship. And friendship. But so I have two quotes. So I call these dueling quotes about First Cow and Old Joy. Ooh. When asked about Old Joy, she says, the film is about friendship, I can say that, but there are other themes that are a little bit more elusive and a little harder to nail down. And on First Cow, she says, it's really a story about friendship. (laughs) It's nice if it feels relevant, but I wouldn't draw those parallels too starkly. I just try to focus on the characters. The story of capitalism is always relevant. It just takes different forms. Yeah. So it's really about friendship between two men. These two movies, they're really the same movie, but with a bit different characters. But I think for me, not that First Cow isn't fantastic, but that Old Joy being so subtle makes it such an interesting movie to dig into. And for me, at my age at least, is making me think about like the things that these two are thinking about. Yeah. And I feel like it's the kind of movie you go back to 
And it's going to make you feel different things because of the stage of your life. Yeah. And I, I feel like we are all at this point where we have like yeah, people that we re- consider really, really good friends that are very obviously in different wavelengths from where you are right now in just like the life that they're leading or where you, where you are in the world. And I think that's such a, a, a relatable feeling for so many people and the way that uh, Reichardt is able to throughout the course of the, the whole like hour and, and 15 minutes to convey that, that dreading feeling. I, I, I feel it's a little, it's a little sad how, how, how they've ended up. And, and, and I personally like would not want that to be like any situation between me and a good friend. <laughs> I think people know to expect pain from breakups. There's a lot of media and movies about that, but there's not so much about the dissolution of friendships in that way, particularly mm-hmm. adult friendships. I really appreciate Reichardt's unflinchingness again in showing how kind of ugly and unattractive it makes both Marx and Kurt's behavior mm-hmm. because yeah. of that dissolution, which all leads into the climactic action of Kurt giving Mark a massage at the hot springs. Wilson's doing a little thing with his hands. <laughs> massage is really interesting. And also the shot that follows. Both intimate and uncomfortable. <laughs> Two bros <laughs> chilling in a hot spring five feet apart. Because they're old joy. Because <laughs> they're old joy. <laughs> so for me, the most interesting shot, which almost feels maybe too on the nose, but I mean, I'm sure you guys might have possibly different interpretations. There's a shot right after you see Mark's face. Is it the hand? It's the hand going into the water? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The hand with the wedding band Mm -hmm. going into the water. I mean, it feels almost too obvious what she's trying to say there. Wait, tell, tell me what you think it is. I mean, for me, like the first time I watched it, I was like, this is maybe Mark surrendering to this interaction with his old friend. Yeah. And actually finding some relaxation. And the wedding bands, in a sense, somewhat symbolizing him thinking about his marriage. Yes. Entering the water, right? Yes. So yeah, I, I don't know. It feels a bit too obvious almost, but I mean, it works. Yeah. No, I felt I felt the same way. Did that change on your second viewing? Yeah. It really didn't. I, it really didn't change on my second. I mean, I, I saw so much more of Mark's discomfort in general, but it did still feel like this surrender mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that colors the way that he says goodbye. They don't talk again after that action until they get back and Mark is mm-hmm. dropping Kurt off. And then it colors the way that they perform that goodbye yeah. in, a w- in a way that I found very believable and sincere. It's crushing because like they're just saying... like it's, it's such normal conversation. He's just like, yeah, that was awesome. Bro. Nice. Let's do that again sometime or something like yeah. that. But it's like, fuck. Do you mean the shit? Like, I don't even no. know anymore. <laughs> and then the, the most depressing part of the movie is, like, the, the part at the end where they're just, like, on their own. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I'm just heartbroken. And Kurt's just lost. <sighs> like, I like what's he doing? That's the That sequence is the one thing in across these two movies that I could do without. I think the mm-hmm. ending with Kurt wandering the street, I, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't need that. I, I get it by that point. I think it goes over long in general, that part, but I think it's necessary because like, you know, they come into the city and the city is lit up and it's such a stark contrast from the forest. 
and the tranquility and all that. And I think him being just in the world, talking to some random person who's asking for money, like it's just like, he has this feeling of him just not being in that space that he wanted that tranquility and might he might not necessarily have gotten. But it's hard to tell because Kurt's not necessarily the most self-aware person, but maybe he is. Yeah, he's a little bit of a wild card. But it's a yeah, little scary because he sort of like reminds me of me in some way. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the drunken monologue for me is like the like the big part that really sees into his character. Like you see, he says almost outright that he misses Mark and that yeah. he feels something is between them. Like he just says it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I honestly, I think missed it the first time or like just didn't think so much about it. I was like, oh, he's just drunk and saying bullshit. But it's like when people are drunk, they say the truth, which is exactly what Hong Sang-soo does as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Me not being the biggest fan of him. But yeah. <laughs> you know how people like are like, oh, male directors can't, can't, can't direct female characters. Well, male directors can't direct male characters as evidenced <laughs> by uh, these two movies. <laughs> so there's this quote from John Raymond. Oh, not really a quote, like... um. He describes this film, and this is again to like some like a really big meaty topic for both films, which is that he describes this film as the inverse of a Peckinpah Western. Whoa. Okay, I don't really I don't really watch Peckinpah Westerns, but so he calls a Peckinpah Western is trying to find the tenderness in male violence. Here he's trying to find the violence in male tenderness. What do you think about that? I dig that. <laughs> it is an incredible like just way of thinking about it yeah yeah i, I don't have anything to add yeah. that, that's like yeah that's a... like this is very interesting it's making all the gears in my head turn like turn and like i mean yeah it's there throughout it's also definitely in the massage it's it's again a balance of intimacy and discomfort and you know kirk doesn't ask does mark want a massage <laughs> just goes for it yeah mark can't even be real and say, dude, like, what are you doing? Or no, he does say that. He didn't say, he doesn't tell him to stop. It's a very complicated climactic action. It's exactly what Michelle Williams said about 38 things stewing under the surface of that action. Yeah. So since he brought up Western, are these Westerns? Like, I mean, first Cal feels obviously Ooh. more like a Western, but like... Well, how, how would you define a Western? Let's... I mean, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> This might be a topic too big for one episode. I think rather than Western, I would shift it slightly to call it a frontier story. Mm. Both of them, in a sense, are that kind of frontier stories. People going out to the edge of uh, whatever you want to call civilized society, blah, blah, and building or dissolving or both relationships out there with themselves and with nature. I think especially with Reichardt's films being about people in nature. And like how that affects you and like how that affects the things you do and like how nature brings in literal wild elements, but also like just unpredictable elements, whether it's weather or whatever, that, you know, affect what people do and the choices they make. You kind of see that with, with First Cow, which is like, you know, with darkness, just not even having like the, the same currency across everything. Mm-hmm. Like people are just trying to make their way. And I think, I mean, Old Joy, I think, feels more like a stretch in the sense of thinking of it as a Western but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but there is a full like a full journey, and even though there's no like catharsis, clear goal that is reached at the end of the movie, I feel like they both gain something through this through this weekend, whether it, it be like a positive net gain or a, or a negative net gain. <laughs> <laughs> that is important to note, Wilson, that 
both movies contain journeys through the spaces of nature, which yes. you could say happens in Westerns or frontier stories, especially. Mm, right. So I have this quote from her about Old Joy. So she says, I've talked a lot about the film in terms of it being a new age Western. And I think it's pretty traditional in that sense, except that the competition between these two guys is more about, quote, I'm more open than you are, end quote. They're still competitive, and I <laughs> mm-hmm. think their inability to really connect, to take advantage of the opportunity they have with each other, speaks to the state of liberalism in a lot of ways. And quote, mm-hmm. quote. so like, there's a lot of like, you know, politics in this as well. It's a bit not unpacked here. But... What is up with with all the the radio stuff that is happening? Yeah, the um, political radio that Mark listens yeah. to when he's driving. I don't understand it because I didn't listen to this, and like, I don't really understand America before I went there. Uh, and like the state of the America then, but spoiler alert, it was always terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's kind of worse now, but yeah, yeah. So this was, I mean, I was watching this and we're recording this. Yeah, we don't want to give away, but yeah, we're recording this episode the day after the 2020 presidential election. <laughs> yeah, but I was rewatching it before it happened, and <laughs> she was liberals had a lot of anxiety about Bush winning the 2000 election. And I'm like, okay. Um, (laughs) The problem they had was that they felt like, and I might be a bit off here, but just my general understanding is that for the Democrats, there was a lot of infighting. Liberals fighting each other about what is the right way to be liberal, you know? Mm. And so there's a bit there with Kurt and Mark where Kurt is trying to be this so-called liberal, but also, you know, freewheeling, almost hippie type guy in the 2000s. Whereas Mark maybe used to be that in college, but then is trying to move on, has a kid, trying to just make his way in life. But, you know, he's also trying to outwoke Kurt with, you know, he's talking about community gardens and stuff. Oh, yeah. The good yeah. that he does in the community. And that's kind of like his little bit of violence in his tenderness, trying to show how good he is now, how successful he is. Honestly, you reminded me a lot of how a lot of Wesleyan kids talk to each other. <laughs> you like you like boast about this little like community service thing, and the other person goes like, "Oh, that's that's great that you're giving back." And <laughs> but I think maybe how it is a Western is that Westerns are always about dualities, right? Like civilized, uncivilized, mm-hmm. good, evil, the native and the and the colonizer. Like there's a lot of these dualities, and I think. Maybe that's how we think of it vaguely as a Western being so specifically about dualities of and being in the landscape. Maybe that's why it is a Western or mm. a New Age Western, as Riker calls it. Yeah, I like that. Both of these movies also have the macro history intersecting with the micro history or like the personal mm-hmm. history. I think in Old Joy, it's a lot subtler uh, in the ways that we're pointing out. But in First Cow, it's like right on the surface there. It's, it is. King Lou talks about how, quote, history isn't here yet. It's coming, but we got here early this time. Maybe this time we can be ready for it. Take it on our own terms, end quote. So beautiful. Yeah, I love that line. I love that line. All the dialogue yeah. in that movie is great. King Lou has such great lines, and Orion's delivery is just fantastic. Yeah, his yes. cadence yeah. is so infectious. It's incredible. Yeah. I just want to listen to him and be like, yeah, tell me about capitalism. <laughs> Talk to me more. <laughs> yeah. Not to bring up that the when we are recording this again, but like it was not an like an easy week for for any of us, and and like me in particular, I, my my attention span was so short. Like I was, I've been checking CNN like every waking hour, and the fact that I was so easily lulled into both of these movies, like like was able to like shut off everything else, is like such a testament to to Reichardt's 
filmmaking and how immersive her films feel. She's a real master. I really admire what she she drives for and accomplishes. I kind of want to go back to talking about ambiguity in her films. Mm. Now that we're talking yeah. about Old Joy, because Old Joy has so much buried under the surface. Yeah. And it's also kind of why, like, rewatching First Cut, I felt like, you know, this feels like Rikard at her safest. Like, she has so much more, like, in terms of, like, budget, cows, set design, everything. But it feels less ambitious in that she isn't trying something crazy. So I was watching an interview and she talks about how or rather someone else was talking about her, I think. Like, she would rather end the day shooting not knowing whether she made something that makes sense or, like, whether it works. She would rather make something that even she is not sure if it's going to come across correctly mm. because she wants to try something different. She's trying to maybe buck cliches or, like, try not to do what is always done. And I think especially with the Western in terms of First Cow, like, she's trying not to, you know, do the Western like other people. You know, do the Western like Riker does the Western, which is her own unique way, right? So, yeah, Old Joy just feels like something that I could come back to every decade and feel, like, maybe slightly more annoyed by myself at. <laughs> every time I come back at it, be like, have I done enough? <laughs> Where are all my friends now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, it doesn't apply to us because we have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, a podcast that will last forever. Yeah. Every episode <laughs> of this podcast is like an episode of Old Joy. No, not like, it's like oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I hope not. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. So there's this thing I wanted to talk about, which is about, and it kind of comes back to like her films being about people passing through, right? Like and just being kind of slices of their lives. And so people talk about her films having sort of an almost circular plot structure in that mm. people go out and do stuff and then they come back. You know, mm-hmm. Old Joy is very apparent. Wendy Lucy is also apparent. Yeah. I mean, and that's why First Call for me jumps out, right? Like, it has a circularity, but a different one, you know? Right. A different book ending, a very different book ending. Yeah, so I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, Ben, that's interesting. Wendy and Lucy, definitely, you can see it. You can see a cycle restarting. Same with Old Joy. Small things change. With First Cow, it is both more final and more circular directly mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of what that movie points out with cycles of history and rediscovering history and learning from history. I think watching it this time, I was thinking like, what's the point of the first part, right? Yes, it has a certain emotional component, knowing that they might be the ones who are the two skeletons, right? It has an emotional component, but then what's the point of this? But now thinking about it as circular and thinking about her making a film that's trying to be somewhat of an anti-Western, maybe feminine Western, if you want to call it that. Maybe the point is that when you see these bones, you know nothing about them. And then when you know the story of the bones it is unlike any of the stories you have heard about the West. Yeah. And the bones don't tell you that. And I think maybe that's the point she's maybe trying to make, maybe very, very, very subtly. I I sort of see it as like people's connection to the land and how the land around you can still tell a story and like this story being like the legacy of of, of these two men is, is, is one of like of sacrifice and struggle. Like in the world of this movie, the, their story was not told again, like after after they died. Yeah. It, it is buried in the ground with their with their bodies. Something that I thought about on the second viewing, I really like that the skeletons are not discovered alongside the sack of silver and shells and bones and currency. Mm-hmm. I I was thinking this time about what does discovering those bones at the top do to the tone of the story? 
does it add tension? Are you waiting for a shoe to drop? And I think yes, but it still feels very purposeful that the money is not there too, which charges it with a whole different type of tension if it's there. So what do you think happens to the money? Like it's just taken by the people who, who take them or like? I don't particularly care. It, I, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think that, that doesn't matter it to me. It's about that Fran ship. I was thinking about the boat and like, I just, I don't know what to do with the boat at the start of the film. Yeah, how there's this big container ship. But I think it, it, it links to the shot. The, the container ship filled with goods is so closely linked to that shot of, of Eve or Evie, uh, the, the cow being mm. um, pushed along the river later yeah, on in the film. Totally. I feel like there's such a direct link between those two. And can I say, what, what a fucking cow, man. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this movie in February and I uh, my back the background of my phone is Evie from the movie and it has not changed since February. <laughs> I will just have everyone know that this is the best performance of the year and it's a cow. When I saw First Cow, I, I was very lucky to see it in a theater uh, like maybe a week before the pandemic got hot. I saw it with a Q&A with Talk Back Afterwards with Kelly Reichardt. She talked about casting Evie and how oh. she got photos from all over the country of these different cows. And like Evie was the right cow. And I agree. <laughs> Another boat in the movie is when King Lou uses the buttons on his jacket to trade for mm. the canoe trip down the river. Mm. I also do think it's like, oh, so much time has passed between these two time periods. But like the river still looks the same and there's still mm. like trade happening. Maybe that's like the big idea of the capitalism thing, right? Like capitalism back then is the same as it now. It's just as violent now as it is then. Yeah. Right. And like it's the same. People try and own shit and then people exclude the ones who have nothing. Like it's the same idea. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's maybe why she ha even has the modern component and why it's so critical to what the story is about. And I did not think about the river thing until you said it wasn't, but it makes total sense. That's a very strong theme in Wendy and Lucy as well. Yeah. The, someone directly says the whole thing is rigged. Yeah. I mean, Rikard's always been trying to fight for the little guy. All her films are about that. And like, even with Old Joy, yeah, I mean, it's more about a film about two people who are trying to fight about a little guy now fighting each other. But I mean, there's a lot of empathy there. Like, I, I don't really feel as kind of pushed away as you are, Eli, from them. But I, I do feel strongly, like, I do empathize with them because I see how it is difficult. And like, it's not easy for them oh I, I certainly do too yeah i have one last thing to ask which will help me close it out what do y'all think about these as road movies because we talk about them being westerns but a lot of reichardt's films i mean she's actually said that i have a quote to close it off with but she thinks of her films as now more like road movies i yeah. see that in terms of the episodic structure the things that seem like they're digressions but really tie into the theme very strongly and meeting a whole lot of different people sometimes who don't return later on in in the story i maybe see that a little bit less for old joy even though there's more driving it's more like a trip movie than a road movie trip in multiple senses <laughs> it's also a very stonery movie as wilson pointed out in our group yeah. chat i agree with eli i i do think that um first cow is uh much more so a road movie and in the way that yeah like the i think the the periphery characters and the, and the way that like they come and go into these people's lives and also like the forward trajectory of the plot adds to that as well when i read this quote and i was thinking about like well, what the hell is a road movie like a road movie 
guess it's a road. It's about the journey, right? And most road movies are about episodic things where people go to places and then they leave things behind, right? They maybe meet a stranger and then something happens and then they move on. Meet another stranger and then something happens and they move on. Maybe that's an overarching goal. But I think the thing about Rikers movies as road movies is that they are just, what usually they are just one stop. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. why they are road movies, but like on a more micro level. Like they are the road movie where it's the one stop, the one gas station. It's just that. And so maybe for Old Joy, for Kurt, maybe this is his stop, meaning Mark. You know, then he's going to go find some other friend to catch up with, something like that. Because it doesn't feel like he's anchored to any place. Right. And for First Cow, it is, this is their stop before they go to San Francisco, right? And they are spending a lot of their time in this one area of Oregon, but like it, it doesn't feel like they're moving, but they are trying to go somewhere. Definitely. Yeah. Same with Wendy and Lucy. She's stuck, but she's trying to go somewhere. Definitely. Yeah. And so for me, the thing I love about record films is that they all feel like short stories. Films always adapt novels, but she's always adapting short stories. And I think that's something that is really nice about them because then it gives a lot more time to go into the details. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why they're like so short in that sense in terms of the span of time that you spend on the characters. I have this quote from her talking about her films being road movies. She says, so quote, yes, they all end up being the same thing. They don't necessarily start out that way. They all end up just being about getting in your car and going from point A to point B, or in some cases, walking from point A to point B. They're like about the bigger journey, but it's really about the small getting to, which is just sort of more of what my own filmmaking has revealed to myself over the years. It does seem to be where the action is, as opposed to where you get to where the action should be. She says, it's funny how your work reflects back on you. I spent a lot of time moving between the East Coast and the West Coast myself, just in a car and back and forth. Everything is apparently a road movie, as it turns out. Mm. It's a nation of cars. Everything does seem to turn out that way. I wasn't trying to make a road movie statement. It's just that everything ends up being that. I used to think everything was a Western. (laughs) But now I really think everything is a road movie. Yeah. Well, life's a journey, right? (laughs) She just does that the best. You know, she just gives you that one flashpoint in a person's journey. And then makes it as subtle and complex as she can. I really admire what she does. You've made me a big fan, Ben. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I personally have become a big fan over the year because I just went into this gigantic deep dive earlier this year. <laughs> and I just see no one working like her, in America at least. So I think this is a good place to stop for today on our episode on Kelly Reichardt, who I think we're all big fans of, at least at this point, I hope. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you can check out her films. They're on Criterion Channel and also on Ovid TV, in which we have a promo code especially for our listeners. So this is Ovid TV, O-V-I-D dot TV. So Ovid is a streaming site that brings the best of art house documentary and independent films from around the world to everyone. And they have films from a wide diversity of viewpoints and many films that are unlikely to be found on any platform. There are films from leading female directors like Kelly Reichardt, Deborah Granick, and Chantal Ackerman, from whom Ovid has eight movies. They have comedies, foreign films, dramas, thrillers, and more. And this is their tagline. With Ovid, you don't have to choose between escapism and engagement. Is it a tagline or is it something that you wrote, Eli? <laughs> it sounds like a tagline. No, they, that's their tagline. They told me to say it. <laughs> I couldn't write that if I dreamed. <laughs> and so we... Have a promo code 
For 50% off your first three months, you can use the code DEEPCUT at checkout on Ovid TV. And so the promo code is D-E-E-P-C-U-T, DEEPCUT. And that's 50% off your first three months. At least, I hope all of you go and check out Kelly Reichardt's work. She's really on the scene. And thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please remember to give us a rating and review it so that we can keep making the show and so more people can find the show. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts so you'll know when the next episode releases. Remember to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And much thanks to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Take care and we look forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Take care. Thanks, Ovid.tv. <laughs> See you on the next one. <laughs>